Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 362. It's March 30th, 2020. And my guest today is Adam Lawrence. He is managing partner with Process Improvement Partners, LLC. And before he started consulting about two years ago, he had a long career at uh, Thomasville Furniture and other companies within Armstrong World Industries. So he's a lean insider and champion who's now become an outsider um, with different organizations. Today, we're going to be talking about Kaizen events and what you can do to help set them up for success, including having uh, an effective chartering document and process. Adam will talk about four key things that should be in that charter. And we're also going to talk about something he calls a wheel of sustainability. So if you want to see an image of that, and if you want a link to Adam's LinkedIn profile and information, or if you want to register for a free virtual workshop he's doing on April 6th, um, you can go to leanblog.org slash 362. Thanks for listening. So again, we are joined uh, today by our guest, Adam Lawrence. Adam, how are you? I'm doing fine, Mark. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, well, I'm glad you could join us. I think we'll have um, a, a lot to talk about. And um, maybe even before, normally I ask people to kind of talk about introductions and backgrounds, but I want to give you a chance to mention, and maybe this will help set the, the framework for some of the conversation that we're going to have, um, let you talk about a virtual workshop that you're offering um, next Monday, April 6th, if you want to share a little bit about that, and then we'll go into who you are and, and other kind of uh, other lean topics. Tell us about the workshop. Well, sure. Thanks, Mark. So Monday, April 6th, as you said, I'm going to be offering a workshop called Chartering, of, Chartering Events to Guarantee Winning Results for Your Team. Um, how that came about was last week I was supposed to be at a conference delivering a workshop on the wheel of sustainability, which is something that I've used and taught teams in how to sustain the results as they implement changes in their organizations. Uh, the conferences, most people's conferences were canceled or postponed. And I, and I decided I wanted to still offer something of value to the community. So I reached out to my LinkedIn network and I gave them options for topics that I could share with them. And they, they picked chartering. Um, apparently this is something interesting to a bunch of folks and it's something that I think I've been doing well with my clients to help them set themselves up to have a winning result and then using the wheel of sustainability to sustain that win for the teams. And, and how can people register? And we're gonna talk about some of those other topics here uh, in the podcast and in more depth. How, how, how can people go and register for that? So a number of ways. So I originally put out a few LinkedIn posts uh, to my, my, my network, uh, telling them just get in touch with me, let, let me know that they're interested and they can register and I would, I would send them the invite. Another way would be to send me an email directly at atlawrence at pi-partners.com. And again, I just want to control the first workshop attendees it's my first attempt to do a virtual workshop. Hmm. So I want to make sure it's the best possible experience for them. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure I know who's, who wants to be part of it. And then I'll give them the, 
the uh, all the details so that they can participate. Okay. Well, good. Well, thank you for doing that. And we'll we'll remind people at the um, at the end of um, our, our discussion here, and I'll, I'll also put a link to that um, on the blog post for for this episode. Great. Um, so thank thank you for offering that as a, a virtual workshop and. Um, for talking about it today. So before we delve more into that, Adam, um, why, why don't you go ahead you know, now and introduce yourself um, to the audience. Um, you know, what, what do you want to share about, um, about your background? Okay, well, thanks. So originally from Maryland, uh, I went to Virginia Tech and graduated with an industrial engineering degree as many of the uh, continuous improvement community have. Uh, moved to North Carolina and started working for a company called Thomasville Furniture, which as it turns out was part of a broader organization, Armstrong World Industries. Um, in North Carolina, I met my future bride. We've been married just under 29 years. Uh, we have one son and over a 30 year career with Armstrong in their various industries. We moved all around the country doing all sorts of different things, engineering projects, continuous improvement work, operations management, uh, my last six years, I was a lean champion. So I went through my career kind of self-taught around continuous improvement and lean principles. I always enjoyed being on the floor on Gemba with the, the folks doing the work and always got opportunity to learn from them. And we always came up with creative solutions to different problems. Um, as I learned more and more about lean, this was the the tools and the principles that I seem to enjoy the most and were most comfortable to me, although I have used other things such as Six Sigma and total quality management and other things like that. Um, I started to become known for working with teams and helping them solve pretty complex problems. So over the years, I kind of worked on my methodologies, learned on how to better facilitate teams and after a while, I was the one that got requested all over the world to help teams. And I did that for, I'm gonna say, just under about 30 years. Um, in 2018, Armstrong went through a global restructuring. They sold off all of their global uh, facilities and I was given the opportunity to go out on my own. So after 30 years with Armstrong, uh, they, they gave me the opportunity to go out on my own. And for the last two years, I, uh, I have my own consulting firm and I've had the great uh, fortune to have a loyal base of clients who I've been able to help solve complex problems all around the world. So uh, there's a couple interesting things there maybe to delve into. Because um, you, know, you had that um, long, you know, long career inside an organization. I was wondering first if you could kind of elaborate on uh, what, what it meant for you to be a quote unquote lean champion and uh, do, do you have advice for others who might be given that label inside of an organization? Okay, well, the last six years with Armstrong, I was the lean champion for a global technology arm of the overall company, which meant that I was helping a group that was not directly manufacturing through their lean transformation. So my job uh, was one of influence. And what we were trying to do was help the culture of the organization see that they could engage and be empowered to solve problems 
you know, in any of their processes. Um, so my, my role was to influence four different value streams across this technology organization and help them see what things they could do to help their teams feel like and be part of the change that they were looking for. Um, what I was very proud of was helping a group of scientists in an R&D setting. They were able to shorten their time to launch from 18 months to 10 months. For the new product development group, we were able to more than double the new product portfolio. And just generally, you could see the enthusiasm and excitement of the people as they felt more and more connected to the business that they were helping. And you mentioned having to be an influencer where this lean champion oftentimes um, doesn't have direct line leadership uh, over, over anybody. Um, what, what, what advice or what are your thoughts on, on being um, either you know, from your experience or advice for somebody else about being an effective influencer when they don't directly officially, if you will, run the organization? Right. So in my role, I had no direct reports. Um, and my, uh, I had a direct line to the uh, global VP of technology. So to influence, you have to have, you have to be able to provide something that people want. You have to be able to give them vision of what good can look like. Mm -hmm. You have to be a partner. Um, so you have to care very deeply about the problems that they're trying to solve so that you can create methods and environments to help them solve those problems. Um, so an example I would go back to was the ability to bring new products to market in a shorter period. Um, to just tell people to work faster is not helpful at all. But what we found was some of our testing in our, in our technology areas, um, we had some very engaged folks that just needed some freedom to improve the way they did what they did in support of the work. And once we got them engaged, the improvements just started to snowball. And it, people started to see that these things were possible and they did have the power to do that. So as an influencer, you can never take credit for any of that, nor would I. But what you could do is feel like somebody, like a teacher, uh, in the when the students start making better grades and they start to really understand the topics and you can get great joy out of watching groups work together in ways they had never worked before. Yeah. Cool. Um, one other thing I was going to ask you, maybe kind of reflect on is that shift from being an internal lean champion to being an external consultant. What, what's something that you've learned or, or found interesting about that transition? Well, certainly when you're internal, you've got some built in credibility. Um, when you're external, you're starting from scratch and you, you have to be very humble around that fact that this outside firm owes you nothing unless you can deliver value to them that they find useful. They can do it. They understand it. So terminology goes out the window, um, being very direct and specific and, and structured around everything you do for me anyway went out the window. What I'm trying to do is help people solve problems and then give them easy ways to sustain those solutions. And because of that, and if you do that well, they'll bring you back and they'll recommend you to others. But what I found out every time I see either another site for the same company or a new company, 
you're starting from scratch again. Right. The good news is if you have something good to offer and you're confident in that, you can you can deliver it. And you're not, you don't feel like you have, it doesn't feel like you're proving yourself as much as you're just giving them the opportunity to see a new way and a better way. Yeah, I see what you mean, you know, about having to come in and, and get to know people and let them get to know you and build build trust and relationships. The flip side, I've heard people joke is I've been an outsider working with internal um, improvement people. They'll sometimes say only half jokingly, like, well, you know, if you, if you could say the same thing as an outsider, that's given more, <laughs> somehow that's given more weight because you're an outsider. There's the old expression about, no, you, you can't be a prophet in your own land. And, right. uh, you know, it's unfortunate. Or, you know, I, I, sometimes it's, it's a shame um, that, that uh, you might get listened to more as, as an outsider. It's, it's, it's a waste when leaders, I'm, I'm sure we'd agree, it's a waste when leaders aren't listening uh, to the people who are really there all the time and, and fully vested in the organization. Well, that's very true. In fact, one of my little internal jokes is I'm the thing I used to make fun of, and you are right. <laughs> I can say some things now that I used to get in trouble for in my own company. Yeah. So I, I totally get that. But on the other side of it, I think if you're really true to what you're offering, you know, I've had people say to me, people in my Kaizen's anyway say, it's almost like you're part of our company. I mean, what I'm mm -hmm. trying to do is just help them be as comfortable and make it as safe an environment for people to be able to say what they need to say to make that change. And I realize that, okay, maybe not all consultants do that. And I also realize I probably can get away with a little more than if I was internal to their company. I, and that, that's a different dynamic than if in, insider and outsider say the same thing and outsider somehow gets listened to more. I have coached clients sometimes around, look, if there's something that's difficult politically for you to bring up um, and you need me to deliver um, some sort of message, um, so, yeah, that, that, that's one thing you, you can do as an outsider. Um, right. And uh, yeah, so there, there's, there's a whole discussion we could have about um, how, how do you help internal people work effectively with the, with an external consultant, because sometimes they've never done that before. That's very true. I, you know, what I found in so far, and again, just been doing this two years, so I don't have broad experience, but sometime I, sometimes I am the first consultant they've dealt with. Um, so they don't really have much to compare with. So what I try to be is very true to who I am. And, you know, mm -hmm. you always want to look like help. You always want to be help. And I always try to put myself in that person's shoes. If they were listening to me talk with them, would they find that as value? Would they feel that I respect them? Would they feel that I'm really there to help them? Or would they feel that I'm being condescending? And clearly people don't want to be felt as condescending. No, no. Yeah. Um, all right, well, thank you for sharing um, some of those reflections. Um, but let, you, you mentioned, um, you, you've brought up Kaizen events. Um, so I was wondering if you could share like some of your experience, some of your philosophy on how do you set up a Kaizen event and a team and an organization for success? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm guessing chartering is a big part of that, right? Right, right. So one thing I was known for in my internal organization that I'm now known for in the external world is how I charter. So chartering is very important to me. 
what we really want to do is have the team or the project have a, a winning experience. You want them to succeed. And I always work under the principle that teams want to win. So if I can help them do that, you know, that's probably the best place to put my efforts. So I start with chartering and the joke in my internal organization for the first couple of years that I was lean champion was Adam wants to charter with us run. Why? Because <laughs> why? <laughs> why? Because doing a charter well to set up the team to win is not the, not as easy as it appears. So I'll describe it's a very simple process. Uh, four steps. The first is creating the problem statement. Well, if you can't identify the problem, there's no way to solve it. But very often right. when I was working with teams or sponsors of these events, the problem statement would be quite vague. We need to improve our productivity. We need to improve our safety. Okay, what's the real issue we're dealing with? What's the, what's the impact on the customer? What's the impact on our people? What's the measurable, non-emotional, non-political situation that's really causing us pain? And if we can figure that out together, that will be the basis of everything we do. But until we do that, let's not have an event. Let's not start a project. Let's make sure we're very clear. It needs to be compelling. It needs to be important. It needs to have people want to be part of the solution. So taught people yep. from vague to specific. And apparently, it's not as easy as it appears. Um, what I learned doing it internally was nobody wants to start writing their own problem statement from scratch. So most of the time I would sit with them and we would just chat for 15 minutes. Tell me what, mm -hmm. the, what, the, what the issue is. Okay, here's what I think I'm hearing you tell me. So I would basically write, let's call it 80% of the problem statement for them, give it back to them and then let them put, oh, that, that looks close. That seems right. It's not $2 million. It's probably a million and a half. Okay. The changeover is four hours, not three and a half hours. Okay. What's the impact of, of reducing that pain? What would it do for us? So once you get that problem statement, that's really the foundation of all of this. Yeah. Now, let's think about the objectives. Step two, phase two. If we were to solve the problem in your project or your Kaizen event, what would be the clear evidence that you've done so? Okay, simple. Mm -hmm. For changeovers, four hours, we want to cut that in half. Okay, we've just executed it in two hours. Well, that's pretty simple. You can see it. I know what that looks like. From a safety standpoint, we want to reduce risk of injury. Okay, that's going to be a longer term goal. What very specific leading metrics could we show to the team to say, you've done something that are going to lead us to less, less injuries in the future? Well, mm -hmm. in a very simple sense, and I do this all the time, I want two implemented safety improvements per team member. Okay, that's good. Well, how is that going to reduce risk? Well, if we're starting to improve safety and you start thinking about, it, I can make improvements personally every day, that's going to change my thinking when I go back to my normal job. Mm -hmm. So not only will the broader solution be better, the person's behavior can change 
to see it's possible for me to make a difference, even in my small way. So, you know, people say smart objectives, you know, specific and measurable and so on. Fantastic. But we just want to be able to see the team needs to know, did we win or not? <clears throat> we believe we've won. And that's where mm -hmm. clear objectives matter so much. Okay. Those first two parts are quite important. And we can talk all day about how I develop sessions to just solve the, uh, the problem and the objectives and figure out which tools to apply. But, you know, that's for another day. The next then would be, okay, you know what the problem is. You know what your objectives are. Who's the team that can help you solve it? Who is the winning team? Who is, you know, if you're a baseball fan, the 27 Yankees? And some of the companies that I've helped, I call them my Kaizen rock stars. Who are the folks that are going to come in? They care about the problem. They're creative. They're not, they hate the status quo. They want to be part of the solution. They're part of the process. They're, they're customers of the process. People that really can help us make a change and are willing to go a little outside their comfort zone to work on that problem and, and get a win. So I call that, that's the winning team. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the third critical part. And for years I stopped there. And then I learned from a big mistake I made about 12 years ago that the final piece for good chartering is I need to know who the owner of the output is. Who's the person or persons that are going to be responsible for this when we're done on a day-to-day -day basis? And once we've identified that person, that's who I want to be our team leader because they become the tiebreaker. They're not going to let us do something that we're all going to regret. You know, I can make course corrections in the middle of sessions with that person and, and they're really going to own it. Uh, so the team is really going to be looking to somebody that's with them continuously through the event. That's going to say, yep, that's going to be great for us, or I'm not comfortable with that. Help me understand and help me get more comfortable with that. So for years, I, I tell you that I didn't always have the, the output owner as the team leader. And there were times where teams didn't do as well because of that, because the person didn't have that skin in the game and they were not committed to sustaining those results when the session was over because they were going to go back to their other job. Now, I do all the chartering with a sponsor. Um, mm -hmm. They have to make that commitment. You know, it's looking the person in the whites of their eyes. Are you willing to give to get the resources? Are you willing to give them the time? Are you willing to feed them? Are you willing to make this the most important thing that happens this week, other mm -hmm. than, you know, a safety incident or family emergency? And I have tons of stories about asking, you know, at the whites of their eyes, how can this not be the most important thing? So a quick story mm -hmm. on the West Coast with a team. The charter said that what we were going to do was going to be worth two to three million dollars annually. And we get to this winning team question. And I named two people from a plant all the way across the country. And the plant manager says to me, well, I don't know if we can get these folks. I said, really? This is worth two to three million dollars if we get it done this week. So can you tell me anything in your company that can generate that level of return in a week? Mm. 
And he looked at me and he said, well, you, know, you put it that way. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, great. Well, then I think you have all the leverage and all the clout you could ever want. All you can do is ask. But now you have the compelling reason. And he got the people. He could have gotten two more people if he wanted them, I'm sure. But he had a great charter. You know, the guy on the East Coast had worked with me many times. So he was waiting for the charter. He said, I'm not giving you anybody without a good charter. Got the charter. This guy got the people. We had a great event. And they actually have set some production records since the event was done in October. So one thing I was curious to maybe delve into a little bit more was, um, you know, selecting a team. Yep. Um, one, one, one thing that stood out in particular, you talk about, you know, people who are dissatisfied with the status quo. See, I, I look at those people as being um, bringing huge value to the organization. A lot of times, though, they get, they get labeled as uh, complainers or troublemakers because they're dissatisfied with the status quo. I'm curious, what are some of your reflections on, you know, trying to make a positive out of that dissatisfaction, steering it in an improvement direction or having it's, it being accepted better by the organization? Right, so I love to have what I call the healthy skeptics on my teams. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little challenging on day one, the first 15 minutes, however, I will tell you that. So you reap what you sow when you get those folks on your team. So I love having those folks, like I said, what's impressive is when they see that they can be part of the change to the status quo, everybody notices, of course, them first. But then there's, they start telling others and the rest of the organization sees, hey, if I'll make up some names, if Joe and Mary think this is worth doing, maybe there is something to this. So the healthy skeptics. Now, that's not to say that you don't get folks that on your teams that are skeptical just for the sake of being skeptical or cynical for the sake of being cynical. Sometimes they like to call themselves realists. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a fun self-label you get. And I go, <laughs> okay, this is going to challenge my facilitation skills a little bit. But the reality is if you're putting out there the opportunity to engage and empower them, to make the change, if they, if you can get them to believe because you're really doing it, that they have a chance to make the change that they're really wanting to make. It just, it's kind of organic. Yeah. And, and it's, it's fun and it's exciting. And I'm sure in my early days, I was extremely intimidated by that. And the more and more you do this, you know, you find that these folks have similar wants and dreams and desires as everybody else. And they just have a different perspective, but their perspective is hugely valuable. And when you can open up their thinking, their creativity just comes through. Yeah. Are there any risk factors like, you know, that come to mind of, of um, who, might, who might be a bad candidate for participation in a Kaizen event? Well, there are always risks. Um, we've had folks, I think the biggest risk is when a team member doesn't realize he or she's a team member. Um, so for example, um, they're told the day before that they're gonna be on a Kaizen team. I it's certainly a risk. So they don't understand why they're there. They're not, they're not excited by the topic. They, right. they don't feel like they're part of the solution. So that has happened more than I care to uh, 
care to remember. But but my chartering tries to keep that from happening. But sometimes companies get into the numbers game more than the let's solve the problem because it's the important problem game. So I try mm-hmm. to avoid that. Uh, again, chartering is the critical moment for me. It's my it's my opportunity to look that leader in the eye and truly understand their commitment to the process and their commitment to sustaining the, the win after it's over. I won't be there when it's over. I want these folks to have a great experience and I want it to be sustained. I want them to have that support. So if you're just going to throw people on a team, there's got to be good reason for it. Um, they need to be part of that solution. So uh, clearly there are risks and there are folks that have been on my teams that I didn't know beforehand. So I'm taking, you know, I'm taking the word of the, of the sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one thing you mentioned earlier, I want to make sure we, we talk about is the wheel of sustainability. What, what, what is that? Where, where does it come from? If you could explain that for us. Okay. So I think all your listeners would say there's probably nothing new in lean. We all just have our different approaches to things. Uh, so one thing I'm known for in my small circle of influence is I developed a little model around how to sustain changes, improvements, anything that really you cared about um, living on once any project or session is over. So I call it the wheel of sustainability. It looks like an old tiny wheel with eight spokes and one hub. And in the center is the hub, the thing that holds everything together, which is the leadership commitment. So around the wheel, starting at 12 o'clock, there's eight components, as I said, it starts with notification. So what I'm caring about is that each team, when they implement a change, they're thinking about all these components and they're thinking very carefully about how they work and how they'll help people deal with the change. Because as we know, whether you're into the, uh, the law of entropy or you just know human nature, people, people tend to go back to what they're familiar with and they'll, you know, a, a system will go back into chaos if you're not really purposeful around keeping it as notification. So we early on tell people, here's a change. You know, this is their time to kind of see the commitment, how you, how you communicate it to them is critical. But, you know, certainly people need to be told about the change. And that's pretty simple, pretty traditional. The next component is how we train and review the change. So I love one-on-one tell, show, and do being the construct where, you know, adult learners, if I just show, if I just tell you how to do something, you might retain 3%. If I show you how to do something, you might retain 10 to 20%. But if I have you demonstrate to me how to do the new thing, you have a better chance of retaining it, maybe 20 to 40%. So it gives us that chance one-on-one to really make sure you have the opportunity to ask questions, give you a chance to try it in a very safe way, you know, uh, let me observe how you're doing it and and make course corrections where necessary. The next one is visible evidence. So the idea being that can I see that the person or persons are following the change from a good distance away? simple ways to do that you know in the land of 5s we've got nice tool boards where the hammers in a in a in an area that's outlined and there's a label and the hammer itself says where it came from 
And so if the hammer's missing, it's very clear to me and very obvious from far away that something's not working as it should. So I always, I always challenge the teams, okay, so what's the way to make it almost impossible to do the wrong thing in a visible way, 20 feet away, I can tell, so that leaders walk by, they see it, something doesn't look right, mm-hmm. they come to help. They say, hey, I notice that your hammer's missing. Is there anything I can do to ensure that that hammer gets back? Do you need me to reemphasize it? Do you want me to go get the hammer? Is there any reason why we let the hammer go away? What do you need from me? The next one kind of goes with that. All the tools that you need are available. They should be logically located. They should be within arm's reach. You shouldn't have to skimp on tools. If one side of the equipment needs the same hammer as the other side, then put a hammer on both sides. You know, when you're looking at your computer, do you have all the software you need? Is it easy to find? You know, are your files a big mess or can you, can anybody find what they need when they need it? So that's the tools to do the job. The next one is truly the personal side of it. I call it clear benefits. So if you were to ask somebody who was not on the Kaizen team, what they think about the change, what would they tell you? How does it relate to what they do? Does it make their job easier, safer, less stressful? Does it make them feel better about what they're doing? So I always have my teams get unfiltered feedback from people that weren't on the team. So what do you think of that new changeover procedure? Mm-hmm. Here's what I liked. Here's what I hated. Okay, team, what do you want to do about that? Because when we go away, if they truly don't believe it's a benefit to how they do what they do, they're going to go back to their normal way of doing things. Right. The next component is the layered audit. So even with the best of intentions, things don't always go right. People don't always understand. So we ask leaders, I would say we demand it, but you know, you're always asking, come by and see what we're doing. Let's give you a structured way of verifying everything's as it should be. And, and if it isn't, we want you to come in and engage. We want you to help. We want you to reemphasize and reinforce. We don't want you to discipline people. We want you to help them understand why this is so critical, why this is so important. So I like where they sign off. I like, so it shows that they were here. The plant manager was here yesterday. The ops manager was here the day before. Somebody from a different department came by last week. I like when they do that because it shows everybody thinks this is important and it is important. Don't do this if, don't do any of this if it's not important. The seventh component is accountability. This is the leadership accountability. We already know that people are hired to do a job in a certain way, so they're accountable to that. The leadership accountability is around if I do see somebody doing something incorrectly, but I also have to go to a meeting, what choice will I make? So the hope is you take a little side trip and you go see the thing and you try to resolve the issue and help. And then, okay, you're a couple minutes late to your meeting. Hopefully people will understand that, but your accountability to the organization, the person may be putting themselves at a safety risk if you're not careful. So to clear, to turn your blind eye to it and walk away from it, basically you're just saying your safety isn't as important. This new change is not important. Go back to the way you used to do it. The last component is what I call recognition. And for me, that's kind of the storytelling. People realizing a cause and effect because we're doing something in this different way, we got a better result. And really encouraging those stories 
um, many years ago, one of my very early 5S events was in an area where they thought the area owner was the most organized person ever. And so we said, well, we're going we're gonna to use that area first. We're going to see how we can help this area. It got used by lots of different testing technicians. And the woman that ran the area, she was talking about, you know, it used to take me two hours to find repair parts for these spray guns that we all use. And they used to be locked in people's desks because they didn't trust people. They thought they would take them and run with them, so they would lock them. And so when we needed those parts, it would take me two hours to get to them. But now we have them out in the open, they're labeled, and it takes me seconds where it used to take me out. This is so much better. And the first thing I said to her was, tell your story anytime you can to anyone that'll listen because they listen to you. They don't listen to the lean champion. They listen to you because you got the benefit. And every so often, just to give her a nudge, we would have a weekly technician meeting. Can you, how's that spray area going? Did you have to search for repair parts? So I would kind of nudge and then she, oh, you just want me to tell that story again, don't you? <laughs> sure, I sure do. Absolutely do. And we told the story over and over, not to just the technicians, but to our leadership, the managers and the directors and the vice presidents, because what we wanted was their support to let us do more of it. And once she saw that and the other technicians saw that in other groups, the stories just kept coming and coming and coming. And what was fantastic, other people that weren't even involved would tell those stories. And it would just grow the support for the work. And that was exciting. Yeah, it's funny how the uh, the stories um, spread more, uh, sometimes more so than the results, right? So absolutely, even if a lo the work we're doing is is rational and logical, um, that 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 sense of emotion within an organization really matters. When when right. people feel pride and what they've done, or they, they've they've got something they want to share with others, I, I think that's one of the greatest things about Kaizen in general, when people start seeing improvement, like not as this chore or obligation or assignment, but when they start viewing it as um, you know, something that's exciting and fulfilling and fun. I'm sure you've seen a lot of that in the uh, events and other work you've done. So I have many stories about that. Um, I will tell you at the end of a session in 2005, about a 300 pound mechanic, he was about six foot five, got up in the middle of a report out with tears in his eyes and said in front of a group of people that he would never have spoken in front of, he said, I have never in my 12-year career here done anything as impactful as what we did this week. Yeah. And the HR manager went over and hugged him, which I think totally threw him for a loop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But it was beautiful to see. And it was a moment for me to say, okay, I don't need people to have tears in their eyes, but when they can emotionally connect to something they did to make something better, how can I help create more of that? Because that's what will live on. So the wheel I use with teams, whenever they're contemplating a change or a solution, their challenge is to implement all eight spokes and show each other and show me how they've done that. Give it their best try, but they can't get away with just four spokes because a wheel, as you know, will not be as strong without all the spokes. <laughs> the critical one that they, they used to shy away from, and they still do, is let's go talk to somebody that wasn't in the room and see what they think, because it's a little intimidating. Uh, we have been yelled at before. Um, so not everybody loves your idea on the first attempt, but it's a good thing to learn. And then 
the leadership commitment in the middle of the wheel is at the chartering level, you know, I'm able to describe what that commitment is going to look like to my sponsor. So I have actually said no to work that was offered me because I didn't see that commitment. I did not feel that commitment, their willingness to say, the team is going to be 100% dedicated this week. I am willing to do audits. I am willing to walk and hold accountability to myself and to others. And because of that, we couldn't go forward. Well, Adam, I apologize for some of the uh, the internet glitches that I've been having today. Um, listeners might not know, but you might have heard a little bit, but we've had to do a couple of restarts and, and edits. I need to go uh, figure out a better countermeasure to um, the internet bandwidth challenges in a shared condo building. So Adam, um, for one, thank you for your uh, patience and graciousness and uh, battling through some of the internet frustrations that happen sometimes. Well, sure thing. I'm just glad for the opportunity to share some of my thoughts with your listeners. And and there's more that I wanted to ask you about. So we'll, we'll do, we'll roll the dice and, and we'll, we'll do another podcast episode at some point. How's that? Fantastic. Fantastic. But um, as, as a wrap up here, you know, you mentioned it at the beginning, but it can, may just give a, a quick recap um, reminder on the virtual workshop that you're doing next Monday, April 6th, and, and how people can register. Well, thanks, Mark. Uh, so Monday, April 6th at one o'clock, I am going to be delivering a workshop based on how to charter events to guarantee winning results for your team. We'll go through the components of the chartering, and then we'll talk about the wheel of sustainability. I'm gonna try to make it interactive as, if possible. Um, it'll be my first attempt with a virtual workshop, but uh, certainly we'll do our best to make this as value adding as possible. Uh, there will be some stories and examples and case studies. Hopefully people will find those interesting and some people attending may have been part of the stories. Uh, to register, I'd love an email at atlawrence at pi-partners.com. That way I can kind of control the attendance. Been reading some, some things about Zoom meetings gone bad. So we're going to try to make this as <laughs> seamless an experience as possible. Um, so yeah, so love to hear from anybody that might be interested. Uh, it also will give me an idea of how many seats I need to have. Because again, my first trial on this platform, I'm yeah. used to being in front of people. So this will be a new experience and adventure. Well, it sounds like a good experiment worth trying. And uh, I'm sure everyone will, if, look, you know, when there are glitches or hiccups or something, you're offering a lot um, to people here for free. So I'm sure they'll be patient and appreciative with you. Um, you, you, uh, you, you deserve that after being so patient um, with um, the internet gremlins here today, Adam. So um, th thank you again. Our, our guest has been Adam Lawrence and um, Really, uh, thank you again uh, for, for being a guest here. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.